Welcome to Books on Air, the podcast that you really don't want to miss. I'm Suzanne Harris, and today you're going to get a sneak peek behind the scenes at what it's like to be an author. You're going to hear the backstory behind the book, who or what inspires the person, where their ideas came from, and you know, who knows? You might even get an inside scoop on a new project. And if you want to know more about them, we'll tell you where to find them on social media. Now, joining me today is Tracy Cooper, and she's here to talk about her book, Jockey Daughter. I do not have to be beaten to cross the finish line. Tracy, welcome. Hi, Suzanne. Thank you for having me on, and hello to all of your listeners. You have a great program. Thank you. It's absolutely my pleasure. Now, I know that this was this was not an easy book, and I know that at first you really didn't want to write it. So what made you decide to push forward with writing this book? I decided in my 50s that I had enough of caring a lie. You know, my mother had two sides of her soul. Um, one where she projected this wonderful image, very strong in the church, volunteered a lot. Uh, And then at home, she had a different personality. So she kept that lie for years, but I just got exhausted from it. And as I went into my 50s in talking with my six brothers and sisters, we would, we all have great lives. We would be talking about our husbands, our spouse, and our children and and their goals and achievements. And then we'd always go down to remember when mom did this or remember when our mother did that. And I just said she never did the act of contrition. She's never apologized. So I started putting pen to paper and came out with this book. You know, this is a very different take on this. Normally, when I interview someone who has done a book about abuse. It's not anything or it's not anyone that someone might have heard of. But in your case, this is very different. And that's why it's titled Jockey Daughter, because this is about racing. And this was about glamour and excitement on one side and children being abused on the other side. Let's give our listeners just an overview of of the book. Uh, Well, you mentioned racing, and that's what I grew up in. My father was a jockey. He was um, a rider, a rider jockey, for 38 years. I have pictures of him in front of Saratoga Racetrack when he has baby teeth, and he's sitting with his steeplechase uh, jockey father. His father ended up becoming a horse trainer, and right away, he saw that my my father was very small and, of course, uh, had the experience of riding horses. They had a farm, a horse farm, and my father, my grandfather was training for a Laird DuPont of the DuPont family in Delaware and making a name for himself. And I always say, after reading scrapbooks from my own father, that my grandfather was like Kardashian mom. He changed a lot of things in racing and how the riders got paid and whatnot. So they were bred uh, to be sitting on a horse, working with horses. And through that, you get a lot of glamour. You didn't have gambling like today where you could go to a casino or go 
pick up a couple lottery tickets. It was fascinating for people to go and watch the horse races with winter circle pictures with Lucy and Desi Arnaz. And I've seen Clark Gable, of course, and uh, Hollywood Glamour there at the track, Bing Crosby. And um, it was fun to be part of that. My father was well known. We ended up living in the woods to also stay away from fans that would bet and maybe lose the bet because of something that happened during a race. But you couldn't go anywhere with my father without someone recognizing him. And of course, they'd say, you know, don't give me a tip. And he'd say, my tip to you is not to bet. <laughs> so he didn't help. Me. He didn't help the money's coming through. So it, we had this cheering and this adulation. And we grew up in a community where most parents worked for NSA or the government. And they went to work, came home, went to work, came home, and not ours. We had all these athletes at the house. We had horse trainers and jockeys and other people would come, um, baseball team managers and the owners of the Steelers would come to the house. Then we'd go over to our friend's house, and it was quite quiet because the father couldn't talk about the job at NSA. So we had um, fun. It was exciting. And you grew up quickly, too. There were a lot of injuries. Um, my father broke every bone in his body throughout his career and had numerous concussions. No one believes that he had 37. Oh, my god! So there was also that. Right. So when, you know, when my father passed away, and just a sidebar, I said to our mother, we must donate his brain to science so they can study it. And she said, we're not doing that, you know, with your father. But we had more glamour. Um, and it was exciting. It was fun. And we lived well. And that was the outside. Right? That was the outside. That was the outside. It came from my father. That everybody saw. And so everybody, you know, it's not any different today with celebrities. People look at whether it's a football player, a baseball player, um, some actor, people look at that glittering outside they I mean I listened to you describe it and I could just see all of these famous people and all of this excitement and and this glittering lifestyle that people can never get past because they really don't know what goes on once the doors close and it's just the family it's a different lifestyle sometimes it's right? a different lifestyle and Yes. My, both my mother and father were Catholic. And with that, in the 50s and 60s and the 70s, um, you had strict uh, guidelines as far as birth control. So my mother had seven children in nine years. Wow. And we did have the house in the woods. And my mother was an intelligent woman. She was a nurse and later got a master's degree in nursing. But in looking at how she acted towards her seven small children. We were tiny. Uh, Physicians would put failure to thrive on the charts, but we were genetically tiny. We were in the woods. We were running a lot. We didn't eat a whole lot because of my father's weight. He had to generally weigh about 100 pounds, so we did not have snacks coming into the house, and um, we ate very good. Uh, Therefore, we were tiny. But my mother in looking at it, couldn't handle seven in nine years. It was too much for her. I think if she had one or two and then reserved some time for her own brain and her own aspirations, she would have been a totally different woman. 
She had great organizational skills. She uh, impressed people. They'd come into the house and say, my gosh, seven children, look how clean it is. It was neat and tiny and organized. I, I just feel that uh, the hormone changes and the fact that you did not admit I'm having trouble here. You did not admit, uh, you know, I'm lashing out at my children all the time. That that just was not something like today. So, and then my father knew of these things, but not as well because he was at the barn early in the morning. He generally woke up at about quarter to five. Four thirty-five o'clock went and worked the horses in the morning for the trainer and then had to ride all day and do his reducing uh, to lose the weight. So we got him at the end of the day. So she was pretty much free to do what she wanted within the confines of the house and in the woods. We were all alone back uh, on an old hog farm. So that's where her frustration came out was that isolation in the woods and the fact that she could not be heard no matter how much she yelled or screamed or whatever she did. And she had seven children. It was just too much for her. You know, that's so interesting that you're saying that because I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, she was probably psychologically and maybe even physiologically just overwhelmed because it was Seven children is like a tribe. I mean, oh yeah, I, nine years. And if you have these perceptions of perfection, I write about that in the book, where everything has to be in order. You don't get that with seven children. You get disruption. Um, I know myself. I don't think I could handle seven children. I always say to my sisters, "No one can pass away, especially the one who has five. I go, <laughs> oh, you. I know my limits. I know. Of course, I would have beat my children, but I'd probably be all right. So I can understand that. And, you know, I've read other books. Um, One was a a movie star, and she said her mother was a very weak person. And she said she had limitations, and she was only going to be as good as she's going to be as good. And she was very forgiving of her mother. Her mother was, by today's standards, her mother would have been arrested. Same with mine. But my mother was good as far as putting three meals on at the plates. She was very good about making sure we went to the dentist and the doctor. And we went to the local small private school. She was very good about that. But once those doors were shut, um, it was a nightmare from the moment that the sun came up until the moment that the sun went down. And that was the facade. That's what no one in no one could ever fathom was going on because of this famous aspect. You know, we were written up in the Post. We were written up Washington Post, the Baltimore Sun. It was constant. And um, they, they, I think on the outside, they wouldn't, they wouldn't guess it. Not from this family. When I wrote the book, it was like, not you. Not you all. You you had straight A's, Kathy. And I'd say, of course, I had to run faster, concentrate, put my mind someplace else. So you become um, skilled at um, balancing it. So you do, I, we did have our father and the gaiety of the racing and that. But you, I found that my siblings could also concentrate on other things to the point that you could push that out of your way. 
and um, the book is a hard read, and it's funny. And you, I, I would hope when your reader, your listeners, read the book, I would like it. I would like to know what aspect of the book they felt was the worst. And Suzanne, it's amazing. All the readers say the same passage, and I don't compare notes with anyone. I just say, I want you to tell me which which chapter or, or which episode was the worst for you. And everyone says the same thing. It's amazing. And it's surprising um, that they don't choose another aspect. But my mother um, didn't want to say, for anyone growing up in a household where there's abuse, where there's attrition of the soul, where, where there's verbal abuse as well as physical abuse, uh, you end up getting a PTSD on a, a certain level because it's accumulative right. and you can't escape. You could have a nun, which they did, hit you. You could have a, a, te- a dance teacher who would pull her hair. We loved her, but she was strict too. But those people aren't the ones closest to you. They don't spend the night with you. They don't feed you. They don't have the label of mother. So the hardest thing with abuse of a from a parent is you're biologically tied. There's some innate uh, connection that you must love this person, and you do. But then they're they're attacking you like some wolf in the woods. And then how do you recover from that? The first episode in the book was the very first time that my mother changed from a nurturer or a mother or that position as someone who's supposed to protect to an outright monster. And that, I had to think deep for my editor, and that was the first episode. The last, I was well into my 50s, and that was the Thanksgiving visit when I moved to upstate New York. So you can't um, get away from it. And if you're in a household, by law, up until age 18, most children don't get emancipated, um, you have to deal with it somehow and come out of it. And the way that we dealt with it was one by one, we ran off to the first boy or girl that loved us and said, sure, I'll get married. And then, of course, those relationships never stuck. And you're taking that person on a ride with you, whether they knew about it or not, knew about the abuse. So it it has... Um, so many ripple effects, like an ocean with this ripple in the water, that you you still end up trying to get back on even keel, even when you leave the house. So um, it's interesting. I feel bad for anyone who has to put up with that in their household. They do have to learn to control your own thoughts and to make sure that that negativity doesn't stick with you. Um, like I've mentioned to other people, the doctors that I talked to are very surprised that we did not continue the cycle of abuse. We did not. In fact, my sister says, oh, we spoiled them rotten. Now we've got these spoiled children. But they, all of our children have exceeded. They've got wonderful careers and done professional school. And if they did not do professional school, they're so kind to the people that they work with. They're compassionate. And no one got what we got. They ha- they have a hard time even fathoming what we went through. It's a very my oldest, the oldest grandchild is 42 and 
he I'm not so sure he read the book because he has a hard time looking at me or my sisters and brothers and saying, you went through that. He can't go there. His wife did, and she was scared to death to marry him. But after reading the book, I know she was shaking, but um, they they have a hard time because we kept that lie, like your first question. We kept this respect. We did not push our mother away, even as adults. We included her in as much as we possibly could, and um, hoping that she'd be a, a good person and not um, be negative around the festivities of the house. Did this book, when you when you really started to write, did you feel that effect that so many people say they feel? Did you feel cathartic, a catharsis, because you were able to actually put what happened down on paper and get it out of your head, so to speak? Did that happen what helped for you, me, Tracy? Yes, great question. That's a great question because it's an important question. I didn't know if I would get that as I was writing. I I had heard from other authors that it, it was like putting it in a drawer. Um, what it helped was it enabled me to talk to my siblings who shared the same experiences that I did, of course, because we were in the same household. I was able to talk to them without boiling the conversation down to the abuse, the bruises and the beatings and the cussing as soon as the light went on in our bedroom, you know, and she would cuss. She would use the F word. You get your effing uh, body out of that bed. And if we didn't, and we were sleepers, we would have deep sleep, you know, the air in the woods and um, she'd pull us out. Uh, I was able to boil the conversations down with my siblings to just talking about that and not bringing up some horrible event. Prior to the book, we would start off our conversations. If I talked to Anna, um, I would say, Anna, we're not going to talk about mom, right? Or anything that happened in that house, right? And we'd agree. But by the end of it, we did. We couldn't, for some reason, we segued into that. And did it help us? I don't know. I would get off the phone and go, Ugh, and have to go listen to Karen Carpenter music or something. <laughs> yeah. Because it came back, and you're like, oh, I just want to keep it down. So the book helped me that I could think clear. The book also scared the daylights out of my friends. My closest friends were like, oh, no, one is a loan officer, and he's done refinances for my mother. And he says, I will never do a refinance again. And another woman would bowl with my mother. She says, I am not bowling with her. Others... Um, don't want to read the book, and they're very critical of me for writing it. They they um, shame me, and, um, you know, how could you do that to your mother? And the flip side is, how could she have done that to her children? Exactly. I weighed 46 pounds, right? I weighed 46 pounds in the fourth grade. My brother, um, Robbie, weighed 22 pounds in kindergarten. We were tiny. How could you do that? And there's a chapter in the book where I talk about having my first child, where my mother strikes a child, a baby that is four weeks old. How can you do that? And how can you read the book and be critical of me? Wouldn't you say, oh, 
this is awful. And, well, I had nice experiences with your mother. She was always nice to me, but this is awful. I want the listeners to think that if you see something going on, even in its smallest form, because there were little flickers with my mother, and people, even one woman became the first female judge in Maryland. She and I talked in chambers, and I said, did you know what was going on? And she said, I did. But your mother wouldn't stop, and I wanted to be friends. The, the older women all said, because of the gaiety of the house, the gaiety of the racing and the famous people coming by, no, 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 they, ha- they wanted to be part of that. But if they said anything about my mother, they'd be locked up. That was wow. interesting, even as high as a circuit court of Maryland judge. Wow. But I knew it. And, I'm, right. and a realtor knew it. One of the things I had to piece together from my memory bank was right before my grandmother died. And she was French and fun and little mink stoles and her little dog and her Mustang had Libra on the license plate. She was just so fun. And I, we were in the D.C. metro and my mother was a couple seats away bitching about something. And I looked at my grandmother and said, how did that woman come from you? She goes, I don't know. And she said, Kathy, I said, I, she said, Tracy, I want you to um, uh, talk to me about some things. And I said, well, I have a question for you. I remember being bathed by my grandmother and she would sing Lemon Tree, very pretty. And we loved it. She just sang and in bubbles. And she saw the bruises and said, who did this? Well, how'd you get these things on your body? And there were four of us in the bathtub. And someone blurted out, our mother. And she marched herself down to the kitchen. My mother was making something at the t- at the stove, and she said, I have to talk to you. Now, my grandmother had just arrived from Friendship Airport, which is now BWI. We had just picked her up. And she said to my mother, I think you're abusing these children, and this must stop. And my mother said, you pack up your bags. I'm taking you back to the airport. She picked up my grandmother's suitcase brought us all in the car. We're going, why is she going home? We loved her. She smelled beautiful and she had perfumes. And I was so happy she slept in my bed because I got the bed next and it smelled beautiful. And we were like, where, where, why is she going? Why is she going? My grandmother said that her daughter, my mother, would not talk to her for a year because she said, in my house, I do what I do and you cannot criticize me. And my mother, shunned my grandmother. So my grandmother said, I could not bring up the abuse again because I needed to be part of your family. I need to be part of you children. Right. So thank God. And then if you think, and someone was brave, I wish I had that person. An ambulance driver saw my mother attacking my brother when my brother got hit on a tricycle, a um, two-wheel bike. He was not supposed to be going fishing by the reservoir. He got hit by a car and an ambulance, and there were no cell phones. Someone called, went to a neighbor and called, and an ambulance came, and my mother arrived on the scene and struck my brother and was going to, she kept saying, I'm going to kill him, because he he defied her by going to the reservoir. The ambulance driver was a young white girl who called social services on a young athlete's wife, white Catholic woman. That's unheard of. You did not, in the 60s, call 
social services on a white woman in the largest house in the community who's married to an athlete. That person was brave. And, of course, social services came to her house. It was one of two times that I remember. But I remember that one really clearly. And when that group, two people came, she had pin curled our hair and put a roast beef on the counter and made the house look gorgeous, more gorgeous than it could look, and brownies, you could smell brownies, and everything looked perfect, and we looked perfect, that the people were congratulating her when they left. This Congratulating is... her. And, right. So this was how it was treated back then. If you can't get a circuit court judge to see a little bit of fire there, it, a lot, because she was in and out of the house, um, they secreted it just as much as my mother did. And, of course, the nuns, I don't know how much they knew. They still know her. Some of them are still alive. Um, and they thought that she was an excellent mother because she kept everything in order. Catholicism, everything must be in order, and you must obey, and you can't, you know, get out of line by any means, or you're going to do 5,000 rosaries for the next two days. The same with my mother. It was perfect for her to do that. One thing that I look at that my mother did as far as our rearing, all seven of us went through the same Catholic schools up until the 12th grade. She became a volunteer, and I swear, Suzanne, I think it was to watch us further and to make sure that any bruising or any crying that we might have in school, that it was the baton, it was we fell off the bike, oh, the Labrador pulled us down too hard. She was there volunteering all those years so that it also would mask what was really going on in the house. Tracy, this is that. this is just, wow. This is unbelievable, except it's believable because of everything that you have said. And I know that our listeners are captivated by the story. It's one of those stories that I think is so I think it's just so relevant to today because I think things like this are kept under wraps even today. And we all know that in the news, you'll see a, uh, something will happen and some football player or basketball player or baseball player has knocked his wife around and, and they caught it on a camera somewhere. And it's a big story for a day or two and then it goes away. People don't want to see it exactly what you said. Even people that really knew what was going on could not face it, even your grandmother, because your mother cut her off and she couldn't have that. I know that our listeners are so interested in this. So let's tell them where they can find the book. Now, let me give the title again. It's Jockey Daughter, and that's J-O-C-K-E-Y, exactly like you think it's spelled, daughter, colon, I do not have to be beaten to cross the finish line. Now, if you go to Amazon, and if you've never been to Amazon, it's really simple. You just put www.amazon in the search feature at the top of your computer. Sometimes you don't even have to click. It just goes there, and you get to that home page. And there's a big, long search box. Put in the title of the book by Tracy T-R-A-C-E-Y, Cooper, C-O-O-P-E-R. Even if you just put in Jockey Daughter by Tracy 
Cooper and click on it, it will come up. And the book is right there. It's, it's so easy. You can buy it right there on that page. And if you look in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see two little words on the right-hand side of the cover, the representation of the cover. And it says, look inside. If you'll click on those two little words, the book will electronically open and you can read a really terrific excerpt that will just bring you right into what Tracy has been telling you, right into this story. And you're, you'll hear the very first story and the very first time that this happened to she and one of her sisters. Now, Tracy is, everybody doesn't like to go to Amazon uh, because they're the big boy on the block and, and everybody, you know, thinks, okay, who else could I get this from? Are there some other places that you know of that they could get a copy of the book? Well, I have a wonderful girlfriend up in Saratoga Springs, New York, and she has a favorite bookstore there. And she told me, uh, Tracy, I went in there and they ordered it for me and it came within a couple of days and I went back and picked it up. So any bookstore could order it for you. And um, also, you can go on my publisher's website, iUniverse.com, and there's a space for the book. You could just say Jockey Daughter, and it will show. I think there's another author named Tracy Cooper, but she you'll see that those books are, are not connected at all to this. Um, I've seen that name pop up a little bit. So they could go on iUniverse.com, and then if you feel like it, you can go on eBay. It's fair. This book is really popular out in England. I'm thinking, oh no, you know, people they're reading it and they're reselling used books. And then I see brand new books also. And on Amazon too, they sell used. You have to watch, be very careful. Um, it, do you want a used book or do you want a, a brand new book without any creases or marks on it? And um, order it from Amazon, iUniverse, or even go on eBay. And eBay, sometimes you can negotiate a little. It will say what's your <laughs> offer and you can put in you know, $5 and see if you get it and go back and forth. That's kind of fun. And um, I've, I've never had a problem with any of those forums with getting the books. And I'm surprised at how many bookstores will say, oh, no, I can order that book for my customers. So that's another. If you have a favorite, by all means, give the local um, shop. We still want to see book stores out there. I, I like to support local businesses myself. So I'd see if they can get it for me and then um, go that way. Excellent. Well, this has been, I hate to use the word enjoyable, but you are such a good storyteller that I have enjoyed listening to you. I have not enjoyed the things that you said because this is this is a difficult book. But you are, no, you're a, an excellent storyteller. And I think that there are people in our listening audience who identify with everything that you have talked about. And I always like to give an author the last word about their work. And when it's a work that is as personal as yours is, I think that's doubly important. When 
the listeners become readers and however they decide to get a copy of Jockey Daughter, whether it's electronic or whether it's a physical copy. They sit down and they read the book cover to cover and they finish. They close either electronically or physically the back cover for the last time. Is there a bottom line message? Is there something that you want that reader to leave with after they've read Jockey Daughter? We touched upon it a tiny bit that if you see something, whether it's in a grocery store or something jumps out at you with having a child or a teenager around that just doesn't sit right, I the best response can be from a stranger. The family will keep it contained, but a stranger will see it from an unbiased position and be able to really push a little more to get that out. I always find it fascinating, even with missing children that, that that show up, that it's someone who had the antenna up that did it, like with J.C. Dugard. It was two female police officers that said, this isn't sitting right. And their mother antennas went up. And they were able to bring that girl home after 17 years. And I also want your listeners to know that we're an attractive bunch. We're educated, and I don't, at this point, think that I'm a, a victim and that all of my siblings were recipients, and it's a passage of time. But we were able to move forward, become doctors, lawyers, financial analysts, um, UPS drivers. We moved forward and had had and have wonderful lives. So you you can break that cycle, and you don't have to sit in malaise the rest of your life. If you're sitting in malaise, go join a Zumba class or pickleball or something that will get the energy, those demons out of your brain, and get a goal. I know a girl, not to you know keep talking, but who lost a leg in a car accident, a woman. And the doctor said, you're smart, go to law school. And she did. She said, I was depressed and was going to kill myself because she had a lot of sympathy for herself, of course. But she ended up being the best student, and I've lost track of her, but I bet she's a good lawyer. So you have to think of something positive, whether it's crocheting the best blanket, growing the best rose, do something that gets you away from those thoughts. And then you'll live a happy, healthy life. I love that. And I love that you have written this book, that it's been cathartic for you. I'm sure it's been, it has generated interesting discussions within your siblings because nobody views a situation exactly the same way. Thank you for being brave enough to share the story behind the curtain in Jockey Daughter. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and to have you as a guest on Books on Air. Thank you so very much for being here today. And thank you, Suzanne, and your wonderful listeners. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. Now remember, you can find Jockey Daughter by Tracy, T-R-A-C-E-Y, Cooper, on Amazon. You've been listening to the Books on Air podcast brought to you on webtalkradio.net. You can also hear this podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, as well as Apple Podcasts. 
I'm Suzanne Harris, and I hope you'll join us for the next Books on Air podcast, because remember, you never know who's going to be here, and you never know what we're going to talk about. Thank you so very much for listening.